Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Sarah from Wellington, and you are listening to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is, where do broken toys go? These things need somewhere. Everything else has a place. But these two things don't. <laughs> oh, thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast for myself, comedian, writer, and occasional actor, Dane Baptiste, my producer friend, Howard Cohen, aka The Hizzer. Hello. And a mix of very special guests pose the questions that need to be asked. And we are talking everything from... We are talking everything from Sarah, from Wallington's question, where do all the broken toys go? Uh, I mean, it, I think it's quite a depressing answer here, isn't it, Dane? It's, uh, it, it's into a rubbish tip, never to be loved again. I mean, you have smashed and dashed the dreams of many a Pixar and Toy Story <laughs> fan with this revelation, Howard. I mean, you know, there's a possibility that toys can be made into other toys. Or maybe, they, or I imagine they go to Toy Purgatory, where, yeah. you know, they have to take account of what they did as a toy. And if they were fully articulated for the purposes of enjoyment for their uh, human owners. But then at the same time, it's like, do you like the idea of toys being sentient and actually being able to think and therefore... Oh, be- Toy Story 3 has scarred yeah. me forever, mate, so I don't think I can cope with that. But, um, I mean, but it's a good question, Sarah. It's, it's a, a great question. question. But I'm going to say, Sarah, that to just assuage your fears, I imagine that the uh, sustainable and recyclable toys are reborn in their new uh, recreational glory. And toys, uh, less so, uh, they go to the toy graveyard where they are able to enjoy eternal peace from playing you know in a world where buttons never fall off hair never strays hands are never burnt people have never had their heads pulled off and it's just a wonderful place for all toy kind well it's a it's a it's an inspirational speech from dane and <laughs> suffice suffice to say we ask and answer all the questions on this podcast absolutely so thank you very much for the question and as we've proven no question is too big small or stupid to ask and if you do like the show please rate and review on apple Podcasts or follow us on spotify and you'll never miss an episode you can subscribe to us on acast the world's largest podcast network with all of the best guests and the best questions with that being said on today's show is an academic activist and author he is professor of black studies at birmingham city university he is the author of back to black retelling black radicalism for the 21st century he is a regular contributor to the guardian and has made numerous tv appearances on the bbc and good morning britain his new book the new age of empire how racism and colonialism still rule the world is out in early 2021 so please welcome to the show kainde andrews hey greetings how are you hey, welcome I'm good. I think some of those toys might end up in the underdeveloped world. <laughs> Sadly, they probably just oh, send them off to cool. Africa. Oh, yeah. Yeah, some might end up in the developed world. Yeah, so that's cool. I always thought about doing that, you know, but maybe having a toy drive, especially for toys that I suppose can't be necessarily recycled. Why not get, you know, gather them all up like you do with clothing and other charitable donations and give them to uh, some, you know, less fortunate children? Really good idea. So, yeah, I'm sure they end up in a developed world. Just don't send them anything jagged and stuff. And uh, so you sell them dolls and any kind of anthropomorphized animal. It's representative of the continent, is what we stipulate, Mr. Andrews. Am I correct? Yes, they could be self hating, self hating kids with their white dolls in Africa. <laughs> we, have, we have enough of those, I feel. <laughs> we have enough of those. Yeah. The saying, like, you know, you've got action figures called the Flash and Quicksilver, and the fastest man in the world is a black man, and his surname is Bolt. What are you waiting for? <laughs> true, true. <laughs> uh, I definitely think, I don't know, when I look back on the toys that I had as a kid, you know, some of them were built to last, right? Some of them were actually quite, you know, durable. And, like, we've still got um, a lot of the car, you know, the cars that you used to buy, those little kind of... Match, matchbox cars, yeah. Matchbox. They, they, all, they all last, don't they? That's a good toy. But there's some stuff that just... Oh. It was a lead paint. Yeah, the lead paint. Yeah, lead paint stuff didn't do so well. Built think, yeah, built it builds a last, and you know, same with asbestos. It's all well lined, but not particularly good for human beings, I suppose. Um, hmm. I also, I feel like, um, so we're defining as toy as well because 
I feel like the 80s onwards toys kind of changed. So like for old like computer game or video game consoles, are those considered toys? Do those get thrown away? Mm. Also, sex toys. Are those technically toys? Because I'm just saying, <laughs> is somebody going to use a recycled uh, vibrator? Mm, like if, now, <laughs> would, that, would that be a good like for you know for a woman that is uh you know taken justifiably taking control of her own sexuality and wants to use a sex toy? Would it be a good? And this is a question for the listeners: Would it be seen as a good USP if you were able to buy a sex toy that was like made from recycled plastic? Well, I mean, I can tell you something that there is a comedian called John Long who Dane has probably bumped into at some point, who does a song um, called You Can't Recycle That because he used to work in a recycling centre. Mm-hmm. And um, you, I can categorically tell you, you can't recycle dildos. Um, he makes that very clear in the song through much many, many months of experience. Um, <laughs> All right. Uh, That's actually quite good to know. It's good to know, yeah, because I feel like, yeah, I, I don't, if I had a girlfriend that was ecologically conscious, and I was like, there you go, it's completely recycled. It's completely recycled. You know, I imagine if she was happy with recycled palettes, then we probably wouldn't be in a committed relationship. But um, it's probably uh, it's probably time for a question, Dane, before we dive <laughs> further off this deep end yeah. with this incredible academic guest that we've brought to the show. Would, this is about academics and semantics. I'm just saying, if you bought your, your, if you were to buy your son a bike that was made from recycled crack pipes. You make a valid point, Dane, as as ever, mate. We've got a whole year to answer those type of questions. We'll come back to that. Um, yeah, but... Yeah. Um, uh, kind day, thank you so much for coming on the show. I uh, really appreciate uh, you coming along and also the work you do. Um, so the way the show works, as I'm sure you're aware, is that we will uh, invite you as our esteemed guest to ask the first question, which we'll discuss for 15 minutes or some change. Then Howard will ask a question and we will do the same. And then, of course, lather, rinse, repeat. I'll ask the last question, discuss for 15 minutes or some change. Then we are all done and then we can find out where you can find more about your amazing musings and outlook. Then everybody goes back to living their life and continues to find their way through this new 2021 dystopia. Uh, sound like a plan? Yep, sounds good. Cool, perfect. Uh, therefore, we welcome you to ask our first question. Um, yeah, so I'm on TV a lot, as you said, and uh, the main debate seems to be: Is Britain racist? So my question is: Why on earth are we still having? Why on earth are we still asking whether Britain is racist? And how how often do you contemplate that question, K and D? Well, I mean, my personal life and professional life, literally never. But on TV and in radio, it's like um, actually, why is water wet? Like I, I don't, I don't. Precisely. Know. You know what's even more interesting question as well, kind of just to add on to that is um, who we're defining as we, because as you're stating correctly, you and I, we don't have to be like, is racism still a thing here? This is not a question we need to ask because, like you said, it is nigh on atmospheric to experience institutional and structural racism in the UK for ourselves. So when you say we, who would we mean as we? Yeah, we. I mean, I guess it's not me or you. I guess it is we. Society, in, uh, society as a whole, do you think? Or? Um, mainstream, mostly white people. Um, <laughs> what is being, but there's, there, there's more of our people as well, black people who are also asking this question. You'd be surprised that that is another feature. Uh, of, um, I'm, not, I'm not surprised. I'm, I'm, I'm well aware of uh, Calvin Johnson and Kemi Bardenock and uh, Kwame Kwarteng, just to list yeah. a few uh, of the... Every uh, time I... Every time I go on, to, on Good Morning Britain, it, f- it feels like they find someone else, another black person to find to, to also ask why Britain is racist. Uh, it's, it's it's quite a te- it's quite a skill. Actually. I'm not sure. Where, I never I've never met any black person that would think that was a question. Is, is it a skill kind day? Of, I think if you've ever been walking down the street around the ball ring, maybe when you've been off lectures at Birmingham University and you've seen somebody who's struggling with substance abuse, is it that hard <laughs> to get them to say something that they may not necessarily agree with for some level of remuneration or compensation? You know, you can get a cracker to say whatever you want with enough money or crack. <laughs> I guess I never thought it like that. Yeah, you know, I mean, you, you'd be surprised what people can say. It's like, you know, in the same way, there are still scientists who deny the fact that the uh, impact of uh, humanity on the uh, natural environment, despite the fact that it's very clear to most people that obviously we had an industrial revolution, so it must have changed something. But you hear scientists, people that are supposed to be able to be impartial and look at something with a level of intellect being like, Hmm. Do black people feel pain? So you'd be surprised what what level of. Well, I'm, I'm sure you're not surprised about the level of um, Caucasian cognitive dissonance that can exist uh, if it's uh, well supplemented enough. So, yeah. Just to get started on the question, I would say there are a number of reasons why we are still asking this question. I think uh, culturally, and I guess to an extent semantically, I feel a lot of people realise that they, because there is no historic scientific or biological basis for racist platitudes 
it really is a point of ridicule and shame for most people to openly admit that they believe in white supremacy. Uh, I think this is all evidenced by the fact that most of the time when you hear the most unabashed and most incendiary racial rhetoric, it normally comes from an anonymous source. Uh, when I experience racial vitriol on social media, for example, uh, the quintessential uh, racist will normally have a profile picture with a Union Jack, Union Jack with uh, two SS uh, lightning uh, bolts, uh, Union Jack that is coloured black, Union Jack with skull, uh, Union Jack that's upside down, Union Jack mixed with American flag, Union Jack mixed with Confederate flag, or a painting, an oil painting of the Crusades. So it's never actually from somebody with a real avatar or someone who is actually assuming their true identity. So I feel like um, it's people are avoiding acknowledging the existence of racism in the same way, you know, that people are reluctant to acknowledge the uh, endemic child abuse that takes place within some uh, religious institutions. It's just a shame for people to admit. So I guess that would be one of the reasons why. I think also um, for those like yourself who have studied uh, chattel slavery and studied, uh, you know, racism in terms of the uh, benefactors and the privilege of rights for some, there is a very large commercial interest invested in maintaining white supremacy. For example, the fact that in 2016, we most people found out that as recently as 2016, we as taxpayers, including those of us descended from the Windrush generation, descended from slaves, have been paying restitution and reparations to former slaveholders uh, for the loss of human beings, ourselves. So while we've been having this uh, dual conversation about the... Uh, lack of viability of reparations or the ridiculousness of re of uh, reparations or the impracticality of it, we've been paying reparations to the people who uh, set up set this up in the first place. So I feel like that's one of the reasons why it's just a question of plausible denial in order to avoid what would actually follow on from the admission of these atrocities, which I guess would be a pursuit of compensation for, uh, you know, human rights abuses. But it's interesting to think about the, the, the way uh, Kandi phrases it, which is that, that why are we still debating it? And, and I, I kind of, I'm, I'm a Jew, so I get some, some dispensation, but not, I'm still a white person, you know, so I'm not, it's not the same, I'm aware. <laughs> the thing um, that I, I often think is, is that people have thought it has ended. People, there's a load of white people, in the, tell me if I'm wrong, uh, who thought it all ended and we're we're fine now, aren't we? And and that's clearly not the case, is it, Kyendi? Uh Yeah, I think that's the big problem. Is because you know you have black people on TV, you have black professors. We had Barack Obama as well, black president. There is this kind of assumption that oh, we've moved on, everything's changed, everything's better. But come on, all the evidence is so clear, it's so obvious. If you look at education, you look at schools, look at health, look at COVID, look at everything. It should be. It, it should be. It should be, but it's a very easy question. I mean, it's bland obvious, but it's a very existential question that's very easy to answer. And I, again, I did an experiment in the same way, uh, kind of, where I said uh, an open question on Twitter, where I was like, if you, as a white person, where you deny the existence of privilege, were to wake up and no other aspect of your life was to change other than the color of your skin, would your life change in any way? And the response, I mean, for me, it's a closed question, either yes or no. Now, we can obviously build on this question and be like, in what way? But nobody was able to answer the question directly. The only person that really answered was somebody who was like, that's bullshit, but if you wake up blind, your life will change as well. I'm like, those are two false equivalencies. One is a disability, and one is just a phenomenon of a distribution of men in someone's skin. I don't think so much of it, people think it's gone. I just think that people try to use these singularities as examples of equality. And so, for example, as, as Howard, and as you said correctly, that people said it's gone now, things have changed because they see black people on TV. But I would hasten to remind people that uh, at the, prior to the Civil Rights Act being signed, you know, someone like Paul Robeson was still on TV working with the miners. And we didn't even have a Civil Rights Act back then. You know, Eartha Kitt had changed her base in the United States and she has lived and then moved to the UK. And, you know, those of you who enjoy hearing the Santa Baby song uh, every single Christmas by Marks and Spencer, that was sung by Eartha Kitt. But she left the U.S. because she had made a comment to uh, the president at the time's wife. Um, and she, I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt. And she had said that America was still very deeply racist. And Eleanor Roosevelt had become so upset that Eartha Kitt was eventually blacklisted and had to move to the U.K. I believe uh, Sam Cooke also moved to the U.K. due to um, racial inequity as well. But I guess my question for most people would be, if the case of having a single black person in a position of power is indicative of equality, then I would ask you, uh, you know, 
since the first woman became a police officer, there's sexual trauma and sexual assault. Was it reduced for women? It wouldn't have done. There was a black, there were black police officers before there was a black president. Has police brutality towards black people changed in any way? You know, in the same way that like you have uh, women that obviously work now within sexual health. But again, does this mean that women are being spared the constant uh, threat of sexual trauma? They haven't. So, yeah, again, it would be a real false equivalency. Yeah, and also we overestimate. So, I, like, they just came out. There is, I'm one of 152 black professors in the entire country. Two percent of all professors in the UK are black. I think I saw it. Zero point six. Zero point six percent. It's really bad. <laughs> I mean, literally, if you're if you're a young black man today in the UK, you probably have more chance of dying before your thirtieth birthday than you do have of becoming a professor. That's the reality of Britain today. Absolutely, and I mean, this is and this normally for me is a great way of looking at the uh, state of race relations because, as you said, mm-hmm. what tends to happen is that we are forced to subsist on more aesthetic examples of ourselves normally within the holy trinity of sports, uh, crime and entertainment. But then there's this strange, but there's this strange thing, and I'd love to hear Kindy's take on it, which is that, you know, you, you've gone on, you know, the main program in this country to talk about race and racism. Uh, it was with Piers Morgan, right, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, too many times, a, no- a number of times. <laughs> How did to, to, I think we'd all appreciate it because you know I think this helps a bit. You know that's an example of people debating whether there's racism in the UK. How did you find that experience? How frustrating was it, or wasn't it? Um, for me, I, I go into those conversations, and I mean Piers Morgan is just one example, but I think most of these conversations are very similar. I kind of go into it not expecting anything at all, <laughs> so I don't get yeah. frustrated. This is people get quite surprised that I'm quite calm and don't really get frustrated. Because for me, it's more there's a, you'd be surprised how many black people watch that stuff. I'm really surprised. Like, I just walk down the street and someone will say, oh, I saw you giving Pierce hell, keep going. Da, 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 da. And so for me, it's about that conversation. <laughs> and also, I kind of like, I kind of like winding Pierce Morgan up. It's quite funny just to watch, to watch, to watch, to watch the explosion. A man, a man after my own heart. No, and it's, it's fine. I think, I think, especially when you are, uh, have, you are dealing with uh, people that themselves are bankrolled by people who, again, have a commercial interest in maintaining a certain status quo. So, you know, if someone's appearing on a channel that's going to be owned by Rupert Murdoch, for me personally, it doesn't really stand to reason that they would be uh, sympathetic to your position or to your narrative. Um, I was, I mean, I find it funny that people seem to forget that Piers Morgan works on GMTV because he was kicked off of a newspaper for printing uh, false pictures. So it's very interesting to see and how... Phone tapping. Yeah, phone, phone tapping. tapping. Well. So it's very interesting to see how vocal he is in an era of fake news. I also find it very interesting when I saw uh, Piers Morgan actively endorsing Donald Trump, then uh, becoming a detractor from gun control, then refusing to condemn Donald Trump when he claimed that uh, school shootings and mass shootings could be uh, solved by a one standalone hero. And then we had a black man foiling a shooting in a Waffle House and Donald Trump refused to acknowledge it. And it just seems strange that Donald Trump, you know, he's now so critical of Donald Trump and his own conservative government at their handling of the corona pandemic, when it's kind of like, Piers, seriously, uh, it's really embarrassing to say this as a journalist, but we could have told you this. Really could have told you this. <laughs> it's how journalism works. You do the investigations, you'll find this stuff out. It's like, you know. In furthering your question, Kindy, the, 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 if, if we were to say, okay, there's going to be a kind of pause on the debate about whether there is racism, or we'll just say there is, what's the next stage? What, what, what's the next, what would be the next part of that? conversation i guess well yeah because that's what the having that st- when you can't accept that it exists then it misses the actual real question which should be what should we do about it how do we fix it right so we're still stuck on whether it's even there and so because of that we're never having a proper conversation that's the problem howard is that people refuse to acknowledge the what so if mm. you acknowledge the what then we can't process further down the funnel of questioning like why it exists still to this day and how we can go apart dismantling that system so so far as it's just following on from what uh Kayende said one, I'd say, you know, one of the reasons being is that there is a lot uh, socially, globally and economically that is invested in maintaining an air of white supremacy. An example being that, uh, you know, I this week have had a new show out, uh, which is famous, and it has received some vitriol from some white supremacists or from trolls. And one of the normal and typical narratives that we're all aware of, and you guys can find it on Bigotry Bingo on famous on the website, mm. is uh, if you don't like England, why don't you go back to where you came from? Now, is this based, so is that based on if you have lineage from outside of the British Isles, you're not considered British, but then by that same token, your your quintessential Anglo-Saxon is of Germanic descent and partially of Norman descent. 
And we've seen archaeological evidence that the first settlers of the UK in terms of Cheddar Man were dark-skinned people. So really, you know, any country that prides itself on being scientific and secular would have made that common knowledge. In the same way that when you hear most English people being, being outspoken about their atheism and moving away from Abrahamic religion, well then the same narrative should be in vain with the fact that there is a race as a concept doesn't really exist. By their own Darwinian definition of species, you wouldn't even separate Homo sapiens by species. So the fact that there is not a concerted effort within British curriculum or within mainstream media to uh, debunk myths about race theory, as opposed to Donald, um, as opposed to Boris Johnson hiring eugenicists into his cabinet, tells you all you need to know about the UK. You have to understand is that like we as a society all share the maxim that money makes the world go round. What people need to understand is outside of the uh, uh, monarchy and uh, the church, uh, outside of feudal times, money and how it exists now was entirely uh, the foundation for that entire global capitalist system is founded upon slavery and exploitation of indigenous Africans. So for them to acknowledge that racism exists would mean that they would have to acknowledge that the pretense for their colonialism, for their resource acquisition, for their capital gain, for their economic supremacy is all rooted in their subjugation of and exploitation of Africans. So in the same way that if you were to win who wants to be a millionaire because you cheated, you have to give the money back. So therefore, if you have a country which has based its entire social fabric on Judeo-Christian fundamentals, such as thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain, then essentially you have people that would have committed human rights abuses. And that's the reason why people don't acknowledge that racism exists in this country was because in order to follow that path and to follow that narrative, you would have to acknowledge that the entire position of power that has been afforded to the West is on the basis of African exploitation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I mean, very, very well put. And that actually that actually really feeds into my question, which I'm going to be fascinated to hear what you guys uh, think of it. How you would define slavery in 2021? Um, <laughs> things have evolved in our civilization, but Kandi, obviously I've, I've, I've looked at your, your work and it covers this uh, area in a particular way. And we'd love to kind of hear your, your take on that. Well, the worst way to define slavery now is, is actually the way that we think about it. So mod- the term we think of modern day slavery, which is human trafficking, which is terrible. And it's, 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 it's an abomination, certainly, but it actually has no re- relationship to transatlantic slavery, like zero at all. Human trafficking mm-hmm. is first. It's illegal. We all remember that slavery was oh, yeah. not illegal. It was perfectly yeah. fine. It was perfectly legitimate. Um, Transatlantic slavery was about taking people, usually stealing millions of us from the African continent, debasing us, making us less than human beings, putting us putting us to work in order to enrich the whole population. It was not underground. It was not a criminal offence. It was something that kind of gets, gave all of the wealth we needed for, to, to build the modern world. Um, the the legacy of that slavery is not so-called modern-day slavery, the legacy of that slavery is poverty in the Caribbean, poverty in Africa, and wealth in the West. That's how we should understand slavery. Uh, but it's not how we talk about it at all. In fact, how we typically talk about it is, is completely uh, just the wrong the wrong thing. Why is why is that? Well, first of all, like, as just a, it, it, chat, chattel slavery is one of the reasons why is that we have to make sure that we preface when we're discussing trying to like slave trade is with chattel slavery. Because what normally happens with this conversation or discourse about slavery and comparing these phenomena is that, for example, as yourself uh, being uh, of the Jewish faith or of the ethnic group of uh, Jews, is that you have you can trace um, incidences of oppression as far back as you know quasi-biblical mm. times. 
The thing being that by you referring to Jews being captured, it's one, the, it's one of the reasons why comparing these two atrocities isn't possible. Because by even you prefacing as Jew, it would have meant that despite being oppressed or being enslaved, you had freedom of religion. This is not a privilege that was afforded to the victims of the transatlantic slave trade. If you were to speak your own language, associate with your own tribe, or practice your own spirit or faith systems, this would be done under the punishment of death. Which is why you look today, the um, implication of that is that the only one of the only countries which practices a, I guess, indigenous religion in the Caribbean would be Haiti. Because Haiti was able to liberate itself from its uh, slave masters, it meant that voodoo has been able to still prosper and grow because it's a um, synchronicity of African religion and Catholicism. Now, it's also, and just following from what uh, Candy said, uh, Professor Andrew says, is that... Candy's fine, buddy. Andy, uh, no one calls me professor. Other than only Eskimo. <laughs> 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 it's like, for example, the fact that it's not a coincidence that Haiti is the first and only nation in the Caribbean to freely liberate itself from slavery, and it was also the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the modern day slavery thing is, is, is really there's a narrative that makes uh, Britain feel comfortable, right? Like, look, we ended slavery and now the, sla- the practice continues in the barbaric world and we're trying to stop it. We're the heroes. Complete and utter nonsense. We shouldn't call uh, human trafficking slavery. We, sh- we have to have these are different things, completely different things. They need completely Absolutely. different responses. Um, and if you trace the legacy of slavery, um, it just has to be looking at what is the result of the transatlantic slave trade. And that is, I mean, look at yeah, Haiti, perfect example. Forest one of the poorest countries in the world um, because it was punished because it freed itself. And then you look at where the wealth is. That's the actual legacy of slavery. But by having this term modern day slavery, that allows us to deflect and not really talk about the issue. And somehow Britain comes off looking, looking positive, which is. Yeah. And also making false equivalencies where, you know, everyone, you know, the, the, the Irish were slaves too. And these people were slaves too. But see, but then, but then the question, but then the issue is then is that, and one of the issues is Howard, I guess, is that another reason why it's hard to compare is that, one of the justifications that came from chattel slavery is that was the creation of a narrative that black people, by the merit of their birth, are predisposed to servitude. So in apartheid, for example, one of the justifications for apartheid was the Hermetic principle, which is based on the biblical story in Genesis, whereby Noah's son, Ham, saw him drunk and disorderly and being naked. And as a result of his embarrassment, he cursed his son and said that you would be a slave unto your brothers, Shem and Japheth. Now, this is all based on eugenics. There's no real scientific um, proof of this. But one of the theories within the Bible and has been made into uh, mainstream narratives is that uh, people from the Middle East, uh, people of the Jewish faith, people of Semitic origin are descended from Shem, which is where the term Semitic or Semite comes from. And then mm-hmm. Japheth is where Europeans, uh, oh, I suppose, would it be Asians, Asians right? And kind of, like, uh, descended from. But the point is that basically it is even be written into religious text that black people are predisposed to be slaves in the same way that the church of latter-day saints the mormon or the book of mormon everyone's going to play again um the leader and the founder of the mormon church is it uh he also believed in and kind of alluded to it because of the political structure of america and their dependence on the transatlantic slave trade wrote it into their religious text that black people are predisposed to be closer to evil this is why we have terms like black magic and dark magic and there's all this way of making all this conflation with blackness or being African with evil and negativity. The discussion about slavery today uh, should be reparations. I mean, that's what it yeah. should be. We should be talking about how do you repair the damage that has been done. But instead, we're talking about, we deflect to talk about different issues and just completely forget all well, even, even the acknowledgement of slavery and what, and the events that took place. Um, because again, for those who are either racism or white supremacy apologists or supporters, uh, you know, one of the things they'll say is that, why do black people get a Black History Month? If white people did this, it would be called this and this. And it always makes me think, maybe there needs to be a white history month because then you would be aware of historical incidences where anything you see, you perceive as incendiary or provocative from black people has been done by white people in perpetuity, continuously for 400 years with no kind of reprimand whatsoever. So when they say something like, if all... So again, just going back, I have a TV show, they're like, well, if we had a TV show, there was only white people on there, what would people say then? The answer to that question is nothing, because there used to be several TV shows, but only white people. It is. But black people that's, just that's just television. That's just television. You know, in the same way people say something like, oh, black people are saying, oh, white people can't go here because so-and-so. This, if, black, if white people did this, the answer is you did do it. If you have any incidents you can think of where you perceive as black people committing an act of injustice towards the so-called white race, there's always going to be an instance of white people doing the same to a much higher level with the protection of 
legal framework why they're actually doing it. So yeah, just yeah. just to pull it back to reparations for a second, and just to hear kind of where Kindy kind of goes on this subject is, you know, I I, I often think about that as as, a, as obviously uh, a logical point, right? But the practical uh, application of it requires thought that just people are not really capable of. So like, um, I won't open up an Israel-Palestine debate uh, because we're talking about something else, but like there's a, there's a whole reparations thing in Israel-Palestine f- f- from both sides in completely different eras. Right. And it, 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 it's partly what leads to that being such an impossible problem to solve, but, but this is not the same. And, and, and yet it seems candy that people are just not capable of, of applying any real world, you know, kind of thinking to that. Well, I mean, there are so, so right now the CARICOM, Caribbean community countries have very clear platform of reparations, which is about cancelling debt. It's about there being a significant amount of money to go into educational programs, etc. Cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's like a temp, there's a very clear, like, in the real world, you should do this. Um, the African Union also had one, again, because we often forget Africa was devastated by slavery. It's not just for uh, people like me who descended from the enslaved. It's all Africa totally, not just destroyed everything. That's a good point because of the definition of black because by the same token of reparations, you know, indigenous Australians weren't allowed to vote within Australia until, mm-hmm. what, 1997 as well? Um, yeah. You know, you have people on the Chagos Islands who were basically evacuated to America to test nuclear missiles and they were forced to be displaced onto the Seychelles where because they're darker, they're treated as second-class citizens who are literally a world and a couple oceans away from, you yeah. know, the descendants of chattel slavery in America and the British Isles, but our plight and, you know, our treatment is no way different whatsoever. Yeah, but there are certain things you can do and there have been really quite practical things. I mean, one of the, one of the, I mean, the worst way to do it would just be to give people money. Like, I don't need any money. Like, I, like, I, I feel that also, some people own, And some people own money. So there are people within the world uh, who are members of central banks and companies. You can have all the money you want. Germany had loads of money after the First World War and the Treaty of Versailles was signed. But due to inflation, it meant that you have to use a wheelbarrow money to buy a loaf of bread. So just having fiat currency, you're right, you said that's, yeah, that's not really reference of power. Like, especially when it's like you can have all the money you want. I look at it like this. It's not a coincidence that South Africa had one of the most oppressive regimens to indigenous Africans ever, and one third of the gold's oil, uh, one third of the world's gold reserves are also in South Africa. It's not a coincidence that the Congo has been the site of proxy wars between Belgium and France and other nations for many, many years. And it also has, uh, you know, mineral wealth well over into the trillions. And it's probably responsible and probably provides the resource coltan for almost all of our technological advance in the West. Now, if you think about it, if a industry like that, that the coltan industry was nationalized by indigenous Congolese people, that would mean that the rest of the world would be at the behest of the Congo or the, of, the, of the area known as the Congo in order to require the resources they would need in order to maintain their hegemony over the world. In the same way that Nigeria is one of the world's largest, is the fourth largest oil reserve on the planet. That would mean if that was to be nationalized and the autonomy of those resources were controlled by the people within that country, including the citizens, it would mean that European powers would have to change their narrative in terms of acquiring these resources. If you look at the Emiratis in Dubai, for example, because it's an oil rich nation, those people went from being a nomadic sheikhs in a desert to realizing all this economic, economic prospect, uh, prosperity in the, in the space of like 40 years. Now, if you think if you had little Dubais all over the continent of Africa where people had control over their own resources, how much do you think the balance of economic power will change in this planet? Yeah, I mean, that's, and that's the real big problem. That's the real thing. That's why reparations, it's, like, it's not that they won't, they can't. Because yeah. they require African exploitation in order for them to continue to endure. Yeah. If you like, like Howard, for example, the diamond trade is a known fact to any geologist or anyone who studies precious gems that diamonds are abundant in Africa. But there are people who are external to Africa who control the largest mines in Africa and also control the diamond trade, whereby they buy that token, they're able to control the prices. Now, if you say that diamonds are abundant in the same way that, like, you know, you can plant hemp and hemp can grow yourself autonomously or people can have extra diamonds, that, think about how that would affect the diamond trade which would mean mm. people that hold those positions of power within Western Europe would not longer have that power. So in terms of economically, in terms of reparations, it's not just a question of won't. They, are, they can't. They can't. Like, you, if, you, if you look at somewhere like you know, Latin America, whereby you have Peru, where you have coca plants apparently, and it's proven that like, medically, cocaine is no more damaging to the human body than Prozac, for example. But because it's a natural plant, it would mean that big pharma cannot take advantage of the money from a, from a patent it would mean that you have, again, an indigenous group of people based in a country outside of the U.S. that would be able to compete with Big Pharma for economic power. 
they will not allow this. There's a, there's a quote from Malcolm X, which I always use, where he says, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches, if you pull it out six inches, well, that's not that's not anything. Even if you pull it all the way out, we still haven't done anything. You actually yeah. have to heal the wound. And we're yeah. not even, we're still stuck on the first question of, is Britain racist? Is there a knife? What are we saying a knife <laughs> is? Is it a knife? Exactly. It could be more of a dagger, which is, isn't a shot. <laughs> is it a serrated knife? I don't know. Well, it's not my knife. Why should I be in trouble? I was just there. Well, I think I think interestingly, because I, I I know that Dane has a question up his sleeve that almost offers a perfect transition to what we're trying to get to the root of here, right, Dane? So I'm going to throw it over to you to to, uh, to ask your question. Exactly. I mean, I I as a point of principle, and you know, just for the sake of my own uh, mental well being, I've tried to do a lot of research into the things we're discussing, Dane, uh, and so I guess. And it's also permeated into my material. So a lot of the stuff I, am, I was talking about in the previous question, and just in terms of what we've discussed in general, I mentioned the whole Black History Month thing, which I know can be polarizing even for the diaspora in terms of the fact that some black people are like, I, do, I think obviously black history is important for people to learn. It's essential for children to learn. Now, and it should be a part of British curriculum as taxpayers, as members of this society, as effective contributors to British society, we feel that we should have ourselves represented within curriculum in school, which I agree with to an extent. However, at the same time, I also, I guess, somewhat nihilistically and rebelliously feel like nobody should be trusting a government to teach their children. If you are trying to apply academia through the context of capitalism, you get what you pay for. And if your country is not investing that much into academia anyway, doesn't matter what they're teaching, it's not going to do very well. Uh, following from that, I guess, from my own personal research, I, in terms of identity politics, will always say most people would struggle to describe blackness or whiteness to an alien. For someone who had never encountered the human race, you describing how race would work, because there is no scientific basis for it, it wouldn't make any sense. And I say that because, therefore, by that same uh, idea, blackness is a very hard thing to define aesthetically, or at least superficially, I would say. Mm. Because not all black people are dark-skinned, not all black people have brown or black hair, not all black people have brown eyes. So even just some of the phenotypical indicators of whiteness, most black people have those things as well. So I say all that to say this, uh, Kainde, is that um, obviously you are a professor of black studies, um, but I imagine that you are probably have a lot of constraints, whether it's, you know, the institution you may work in, literal time, and just maybe the expanse of the subject itself. So there can be some limitations to what you're able to teach. So my question is, if none of those uh, constraints existed and you could teach black studies however you want, wherever you want, in the way that you want, including whatever you wanted, no matter how racy, graphic, violent, sexual, honest <laughs> it could possibly be, and I haven't given you much time, but if you were to break down your ideal curriculum for black studies, what do you think is imperative for people to know? Well, so, I mean, it's interesting because one of the things about uni is there is a bit, quite a bit of flexibility. So, like, we designed this Black Studies course, and there's no real, no one read. The only time the the university read it was when we had to put the paperwork in, and they were all like, "Ooh, oh, that's a that's a bit much, that's a bit black." And mm -hmm. then I was like, "Yeah, it is, and they're okay." And it just kind of it just kind of passed through, and no one ever talks about it. So, we, mm -hmm. I mean, the things which I would have to say is one is blackness. So, blackness is really, really, really important. What is it? How it's not race. So there is this European version of race and genetics. And mm -hmm. I'm saying that blackness is a response to that in some ways, but it's a complete rejection of it. Which says, look, uh, we were taken out of Africa. The African diaspora is really important. It's not mm -hmm. so much about color and pigmentation. It's more about politics. Like, where you, That's kind of the only question. Where, where are your politics? Are your politics with us or not? Yeah, with yeah. Precisely. Yeah. Um, I think really importantly, um, the importance of black women, black feminism. I mean, there's a mm -hmm. massive chunk of what we call a black studies now is probably the the most interesting books now even a lot of the ones i disagree with is by black women now and it's really it's just a much better debate that we have that we're having that um yeah. activism certainly to be engaged to be out there to be doing to be, you know we don't it's not an academic thing like we don't do it just to do it like we do it mm -hmm. um to, in order to make things better it's, it's, it's almost a, it's equivalent of learning first aid you could argue as well because obviously it, have, <laughs> it, is, it, is, right? it has some, it has some it academic is, application obviously because you're teaching people like about something that may benefit their lives but at the same time because you know people are deprived of this uh political ideology which obviously allows for them to rationalize their existence or understand certain phenomena they may experience like it's like yeah it's, it's to me yeah. it's like you know you yeah. to be a spiritual person or observe a certain level of 
uh, uh, metaphysical humanity, they read a Bible, they read the Quran to learn about spirituality. It's like, if you're going to be okay with your spirit as a person that is described as black, you need to know this stuff politically. Yeah, that's no, true. I never thought that first day. I, I like that. So um, that's kind of, and, and one thing I always stress in black studies is is new for the university, but it comes out of at least 50 years in the UK, the British Black mm-hmm. Power Movement, all these, well, you can't see them on the podcast, but I got all these books behind me from my, mm-hmm. from my family. We did Black Bookshop Movement, the Saturday School Movement, literally everything I get paid to teach now. Mm-hmm. I, I learned it outside the university. None of it they learned in school, college or university. It was all in yeah. community. And mm-hmm. why were we learning this? It was so we could make things better. And that's that's the key thing. And we try and do that. I guess it, we, it's, there are some limitations <laughs> of the uni, but we do try and kind of keep that within what we're trying to do. It's interesting what you say as well, because you said like, you know, a large part of your uh, education has been outside of academic institution. And I think I was very much the same, like, you know, books were put in front of me and uh, I would Saturday school and uh, also would be at youth clubs and would end up wandering into like pan-Africanist lectures and of the sort. Um, Do you think um, in terms of the necessity of you being able to pass this on within a uh, more classic uh, academic institution, do you think that has resulted uh, because of the, the has, that been, has there been a reduction of awareness of blackness as an ideology and as a political identity, or has there been a denial that it's still required as much, or do you think that because of assimilation, and I guess you know we've had generations whereby you could argue that black people participate more in the systems of academics and economics and politics, but is it a result of that maybe an assimilation has occurred whereby people don't really pay as much attention to it? Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because the the successes of the Black Power movement kind of open up space, let people get a job. Like, it's pretty unlikely I would have the job I have now, to be honest. But like mm-hmm. 10, 15, 20, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, forget about it. Completely not possible. So all those struggles have opened up doors for us to get in and get access and get more stuff. And then we've kind of, over the last 40 years, had far too much faith that things are getting better, that things are changing, that we can make it in these systems. I'm telling you right now, that is not the case as somebody who's very high up in one of the most elite <laughs> yeah. jobs no you don't get better it's awful it's terrible so I think <laughs> I'm not gonna lie it's awful I'm lo- I know that's why I'm laughing I'm trying to tell people the time the higher you get the less people you see that look like you and less people that yeah, it's worse. And, 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 and you're yeah. standing alone and, and it's like and people, and this is, and you know, you can, there's so many examples of this where, whether it's your Tiger Woods or your, your Lewis Hamilton, like yourself, it's, or even Barack Obama. And even though it's like this singularity from people that I refer to a, min- a minority who then also exist as a minority within these, uh, within these mechanisms of power. And yet, somehow, between 2008 and 2016, we was post racial. How do we go from being post racial to an open white supremacist being in power for four years? <laughs> exactly. So I think people realize, I think that's a good thing about Trump and, and, and even Brexit and Boris Johnson and this terrible government that we have. I think people are realizing that that was a, that was a mistake. And so, yeah. you know, that's why you got all these young people out on the street. We need to kind of go back to not, but don't rely on these things, but don't rely on the university. Don't rely on, you have to, we have to build our own things. I think that's one thing, particularly here in the, in the UK, we had a really strong, vibrant, our own education, kind of let that go. And we really need to bring that back. That's the most important thing we need to do. So as much as we're doing stuff in the uni. Doing stuff out of the is is probably more important. Yeah. And, and, and I think, and you know, and it's a very important issue again, as you say, going back to Howard's question before about our definition of slavery. So saying before how we chattel slavery is that, you know, the execution of it was done under the, pre, the pretense that people from Africa are free-fifths of a human being and therefore you are able to treat them in a subhuman manner or in an inhumane manner, one of those being denial of your language, denial of your religion, now, if you think about most human beings, you define your humanity by your culture, your belief system. People of the diaspora are probably one of the only people where aesthetically there are real no indications, whether it's archaeologically, whether it's artistically, of us being depicted as deities. And that's one example being that, like, mm. you don't see a black Jesus in a stained glass window or a black Joseph or, you won't see, or you know, whereas Guru Nanak or Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva they look like the people that worship them in the same world. You don't really get any image, or you could go the other way, like with a, with a Islam, where you do not have pictures of the prophet because you probably anticipate that if people focus on the superficial, it's a point of division as opposed to a point of galvanization, which is why with uh, the Islamic faith, you know, when you go to Hajj, everyone is the same under the eyes of God, which I guess within the West, which is a uh, civilization and a culture that is built on hierarchy, Islam sounds rather socialist 
which is going to be a massive threat. Because if everyone's under the same uh, in the same uh, under the same eyes of God, it means no one has any predisposition to be above anybody else. Which is why you're not supposed to have any royalty within the Islamic faith, and that's another conversation of another time. However, <laughs> what I'm saying is is that like if you have been told you are not human, and you do not have your own language in which to articulate your human experience, it'd be very hard for you to be like a griot. And in the same way that like if you even a Jewish kid that is five years old today, Howard, for example. Mm. You're not allowed to be in your house and not know about Exodus. You have to know about Exodus. You have to know about your persecution during dark times. You have to know about the Holocaust. Mm. Whereas this system does not exist where people acknowledge the full extent of chattel slavery or Jim Crow or segregation. And plus, black people, black people, as predecessors, we have been robbed of the tools in order to pass this on to our successors and therefore in order to continue. So just why I mean, like- I think the, the the balance with the Jews and our obsession with reminding ourselves of our of our kind of tortured past it gets it gets pretty fucking intense when you're yeah. sitting around with your family for this you know festival and it's like okay so here's some eggs in salt water to remind us of the tears that we cried when we were being tortured by the Persians and it's like. I was just hoping for a family meal, really. But uh, but the, the point you're making is is valid, obviously, which is that that, that it's not in into it's not entwined culturally yeah, in the because, same way as the Jews because, have done. Because, because because one of the things is that when people look at you know the, the the example of maybe budgets that are afforded to the IDF and to the defense budget for Israel, really mm. there is a historical and uh, editorial. Um, narrative that exists that justifies that because if you are a jewish person or a zionist you can be like yes we have got guns and missiles because that shit's never happened to us again mm. and as a jewish person you're gonna yeah. be like yeah we do have guns yes we have to do the time in the army yes we have our own domestic firearms industry and that is because not too long ago people tried to exterminate us from the planet now yeah, take it's not in, hard to get your head around is it so then by the same token if you are saying well a hundred billion of us were kidnapped from where we're from we were raped murdered Children were cut out of our stomachs and stamped on, on in front of us. People used to put gunpowder in our anuses and set us on fire and explode us to the point whereby if black women were giving birth to black children, they would give themselves deliberate abortions. Like, okay, let me make it more succinct. Do you remember, you know this, you know uh, The Handmaid's Tale? Hmm. So The Handmaid's Tale, we're aware of the, the book by Margaret ha- uh, Atwood and, and the show. Like, I hear white women complaining about how harrowing that is to see all the time. But then I have to explain to them, there is nothing that happens in that show that did not happen to African slave women. The only difference being, at least the women in The Handmaid's Tale are wearing clothes. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah. really, I guess, the one of the reasons, that's the thing is like, you know, if you know where you've come from, it could be a point of real anger. And then the conversation about reparations and remuneration will become a lot more intensified. Because yeah, it's kind I think of that's like, why. Yeah. I, I think there's uh, people, there's different words now used like Martha, African Holocaust, uh, Mangamizi, to say actually we need to recognise this was a this was something specific and specifically terrible and awful. And mm-hmm. there are marches, stop the Mangamizi march. Then there are campaigns for reparations now today about that. And again, I think it's like really building on that and, and trying to say, well, how do we can we make can we teach ourselves at least to think differently about the past and, and the present? Yeah. Well, I, I personally think we can, and I think the solution is media. Uh, if you're familiar with the uh, uh, term, the spell of Kingu. But uh, basically the premise is kind of like the one of the reasons why uh, racial hierarchy is able to be maintained is because of the continued suggestion from media that depicts black people as being less than. So example being in the world I work in within television is that for a long time historically you see black people being depicted in very binary states in the UK whereby you are either seen as being a perpetual adolescent and you don't really grow older than 23 years old and then you disappear and you reappear as being like an asexual, non-threatening, demure, uh, and respectable Negro. So it's either you're Stormzy or you are Trevor McDonald. And it's very strange that, like, in between that time, most human beings, their life journey is from, like, maybe up to your late 20s up until, like, your 50s or before retirement age is a point at which you are going to be your most politically, economically, and socially mobile. This is the point at which you'll start a career, point at which you'll have a family, you'll participate in politics, you'll be voting, doing your taxes, you know, being involved in political and discourse about how your society exists. These are archetypes you do not see in this country. Because when I did my first sitcom on the BBC, it's the first sitcom the BBC had had on their screens in 20 years. That means there is an entire generation that has no representation of itself 
doing what most normal people do. Therefore, like anybody else, black, white, mixed race, otherwise, we all are forming our self-image based on what we see in mainstream media. If you never see a black husband and a black wife, and you never see a black man going to a normal commute at work and a normal, white, uh, a normal black woman participating in her and growing her career, picking universities for their children, actively participating in Neighborhood Watch, or you know, participating in discussions about spirituality and politics in general. If you do not see these things, you are not able to mimic them. You cannot do something you have never seen in yourself. This is where the conversation about representation becomes so crucial. In the same way, if it is suggested to you that the only times you see images of black people are very negative, if you've never encountered the diaspora, like for example, if you live in Japan or you live in Far East, or you live in the Far East, if you're accepting the narrative about black people from mainstream media and from capitalist um, capitalist origins, you, in terms of your aspiration from capitalism, are going to immediately associate that with negativity. And this is evidenced by the fact that now in in China and Japan, one of their growth industries is cosmetic surgery, where people will have their eyes widened and their noses more pointy and and have and bleach their skin because they want to appear less than black because they do not associate black with wealth and prosperity in the same way that it is a proven documented historical fact that Oliver North under the auspices of the CIA introduced crack cocaine to the United States of America to finance Nicaraguan rebels from overthrowing a democratically elected government. This is historical fact. However, if you were to ask most people to close their eyes and to picture your typical drug crack dealer, it's going to be a black person. Because that's the image that's been sent around the world. Now, this person who used to sell, literally used to sell crack, is now head of one of the largest uh, weapons um, organizations in the world. Now, Oliver North is the head of the NRA. But he's never done a day in prison. He has never had to be atoned for his crimes of introducing crack to America, which also, statistically is proven, is used more often by white people. But if you were to ask any person on the street about them to picture their typical crackhead, it would not be a white person. Because that's down to media suggestion. So I really feel like, you know, so far as like curriculum now, maybe curriculum is not really the answer because most people nowadays, if you have a world where more people apply to be on Love Island than apply to go to Oxbridge, it's very clear that the media plays a larger part in people's lives than academia does. So really, I think the issue is media because it's kind of like if we are not telling our own stories, the story's been told by somebody else, which means how people understand the story is going to be very different. It means wherever we go, something else is telling our story for us. So that's why I kind of want to frame the question whereby it's like you're not limited to academia or anything like that. So off the top of your head, like for any black person that wanted to realize or have their racial awakening, are there like a number of books or films you would want them to read or watch? I mean, listen to Malcolm X. I mean, listen to a Malcolm X speech. I guarantee you, Ballot or the Bullet in particular, but really any of them. Ballot, go go find, Google it, but listen to it. And just hear it. And sometimes it's still with with books, I, like, I write books, I like books, but there's something about the oral culture and the oral tradition. That would be my one place to go. The Battle or the Bullet, Malcolm X. Listen to that, I would second, change your life. I would second that, guys, uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X as well. Um, but I'd also say, at the last part, though, he didn't uh, survive, and uh, that was written uh, by Alex Haley, who also wrote Roots. So take the last bit with a pinch of salt. But um, I don't need bridges. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You know yeah, what, you know what yeah, yeah. your biography is not the best place to go. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Yeah, for that reason, you know exactly <laughs> what I mean. Um, <laughs> is, there, is there a British book read? I should say as well for anyone who, but obviously, people based in the UK, are there any British uh, any British literature written by black authors that people should definitely read, or would be a good uh, jumping off point? Yeah, so I mean, when we say UK, I'd always say like Marcus Garvey is the most influential black British president of all time because you know, born in Jamaica was a British colony, and he died. I actually died in London in nineteen forty. Yeah. Um, but certainly there's a lot of uh, newer stuff coming out now. Um, Ethel Hersh's work is really good. Africa Carla's uh, stuff yep. is really good. Yep. Um, there's some websites you can check out of like the, the free black curriculum, which has quite a lot of stuff around like different knowledge you can pick up as well. So there's a lot of different things happening there. Well, mm-hmm. and also uh, this is a, an opportune moment to, to say oh, thank yeah. you for coming on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that was that was like waiting for that segue to say you know to we I think with this last few minutes of the show we'd love to just uh, get you to kind of tell our listeners about your new uh, your new work that's coming out. Um, yeah, so actually it's about many of the things we talked about today. Uh, the new age of empire, how racism 
and colonialism still rule the world and looks historically, but really takes like some concrete examples, in particular Cabri World, where I'm from Birmingham, so and everyone likes chocolate, but when you actually understand just how deeply racist Cabri, Cabri World is, it may, think, it may make you think twice about your next dairy milk. It's so funny you say that because people will say, you know, people like, they like French cheese and they like German sausages, but chocolate is Ivorian and Congolese and we call it Belgian. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. No. The way they the co- cocoa farmers get about, I think it's six percent of the money made from chocolate goes to cocoa farmers. So how can absolutely. it be fair trade, listeners? How could it no, be no. fair trade? Fair trade is a complete myth. No, no such thing as fair trade. In fact, the uh, many, so many people in the world still live in the conditions they lived in the colonialism. Like, it hasn't, like it hasn't changed at all. It's things exactly the same. Um, so yeah, this <laughs> doesn't sound like a very uh, uplifting book, but they hopefully. It tries to kind of put the context of where we are and hopefully chart where we're going forward as well. comes out February the 4th, I think, in the UK. Exactly. But cool. Those of you who feel daunted by potential negative content, think about it like this. This shit is Old Testament, okay? The Old Testament was hardcore. <laughs> then the New Testament is a little bit softer and then, like, there's a guy in there that loves you no matter what you do. Whereas the point of that being is that if you're able to read the Old Testament part of our journey as black people, then, you know, you can find self-love within yourself. As you have been taught by Jesuit narrative as well, do the same thing in it. Once you know where you're from, you know where you're going. So it will be an uncomfortable read at first, but I guarantee you, once you know who you are, then you don't have to wait for somebody else to tell you. And if you're not being defined by other people, then you are free. No, I just saying the key thing is like, now there's a kind of the way we're talking about racism, there's this effort to like, you know, we have to be positive and we have to be self-affirming. Nah, sometimes you just need to be uncomfortable. Like, it's an uncomfortable reality. I have to embrace that being uncomfortable. You know, and, and a way, another way to apply it for those of you, again, who find the task daunting or uncomfortable, it's in the same way that we have to acknowledge the existence of patriarchy with our society and with institutional sexism. You know, that doesn't mean I have to be prefacing everything but be like, but I'm not like that. I'm different. Like, you know, that's mm. not needed at all. You have to recognise, you know, the human implication and that some people are victims of trauma. And, you know, as a social species, there's never going to be any kind of healing or discourse if you don't try to empathise or at least listen to someone's uh, account of their trauma. Hmm. So. And Candy, can I ask, did you do the uh, audiobook uh, version of your uh, your new publication? Uh, yes, I did. I actually read it myself. I had to do it in my house as well, which was interesting because we had to, I had to make it like a little fort like I was a kid. To hide under the by pirate radio, but actually, I enjoyed it. Considering the biggest endorsement for the book is that I've read this book so many times, and I, I actually enjoyed reading out the audio book, and it was actually quite fun, even though it's different. And it's quite funny in parts as well. There are some jokes in there too. So. Oh, good. Well, because we're an audio, we're we're an audio medium on this. Obviously, this podcast. I thought it was worth telling, you know, letting our listeners know that they may be able to find it on Audible or, uh, or other such yeah, it should places. Yeah, I think it comes out at the same time. It's all recorded, so there should be an audio. Yeah, it comes out at the same time. I would, I would, I would like a copy, please. Yeah, we will be, uh, we will be no doubt uh, picking it up, right, Dane? And uh, it's been a, it's been a really good deep dive with lots of different. Uh, parts to the conversation dane right absolutely i mean obviously we can barely broach uh, 400 years because really black history as it's described not all of the time for people listening is more about the interaction with indigenous africans with europeans rather than uh pre-colonial and pre-chattel slavery history so um yeah uh, that will also be another conversation for another time but um, you know, it's mm. been deeply rewarding i hope to be able to read your book we'll put it onto howard's tab so i'll get myself a copy by howard um oh yeah but yeah, um, thank you so much for coming on the point. I imagine based on the responses, we will have you on again. So I hope that's possible as well. And uh, yeah, definitely. yeah, and also I'll send um, you. I'll get. I'll get. send you a copy. I'll get the publishers. I'll email hey, them. Thank you very much. And also, if you could send a list of uh, some of the books that you have behind you that you would also recommend for people after they look at the ballot on the bullet and other writings of Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey, because uh, people should know that Marcus uh, Malcolm X's father actually worked for the UNIA and actually worked for Marcus Garvey. So. Pan-African, as you see, in all of his modern iterations, of even down to the red, black, and green flag, all the good Marcus Garvey. So it's a great point to start with. Uh, anyone yeah, and Amy, Jakes, Amy, and Amy Jakes Garvey and Amy Ashwood Garvey. Actually, Amy Jakes is really takes all the work and puts it together. Um, Amy Jakes is really important. Yeah, so. Well, listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this this episode. We We have a wide mix of episodes in this podcast. This is definitely different to the Jimmy Carr episode, I think you could say. Uh, 
which is no bad thing, right, Dane? That's what we pride ourselves on in this podcast. Precisely, we question everything, and that definitely includes the questions that people are reticent to answer when they are being asked in a society right now. Um, and Thank uh, you again, Kian. We're, we're, we're grateful for you to come on the podcast, Plain DM. We're also grateful for the work you are currently doing on behalf of all of us, so to speak. Um, not saying I'm a spokesperson for my people, but since you are speaking for our people, I am very grateful. And uh, yeah, I hope to be able to support all of your endeavours in the future. You've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, hosted by Dane Baptiste. For more from Dane, go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him on Twitter at DaneBaptweets or Instagram at DaneSnaptiste. Our guest was Kindy Andrews. You can follow Kindy on Twitter at Kindy underscore Andrews. The show is produced by me, Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by Audio Culture. You can follow Audio Culture on Instagram at We Are Audio Culture. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQE Podcast. Thanks to Polly, Gelly, and the ACAST team for all their support. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.